0: But I also see the problem on the right wing, which claims to be Christian. And they have a, should have an understanding of both the fallenness of human nature, but the equality of human nature. And there what I see is a division of people into an inside trusted group and then the other, the outside group. And the inside trusted group, which is like us white Americans, especially that are rich and own businesses, well, we should be free and deregulated and, and any constraints on us removed because we're good people. We're Americans, we would never do wrong, right? You can trust our military and our corporations. And we overlook the fact that we all have fallen human natures and we're going to misuse that power. So there's this inside trusted group that's too trusted, but then the others, the outsiders, whether it be the immigrants or the Mexicans or the Muslims, we can't trust them and we won't even extend them fundamental human right because we view them as fundamentally different, lesser, not fully made in the image of God.
1: Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Nicholas Miller, Professor of Church History at Andrews University. Last week, we ended our discussion talking about the history of the separation of church and state, and the development of moral philosophy, so be sure to check out last week's discussion if you haven't, since it serves as the foundation for this week's episode. Today we are exploring some modern applications of moral philosophy, and what faith in the public sphere looks like on a practical level. We'll have some recommended readings for you at the end of the episode, so be sure to listen to the end if you want resources for more information. We want to thank the Adventist learning community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is AdventNext. Uh, as as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe the audience or, you know, when they think about moral philosophy and Christianity, like the first thing that they think about is human sexuality. And they, they tend to think about how are we going to, um, you know that Christi- what does Christianity have to say about that? I feel like that's the hot topic. That's the the big issue of the day. But putting that aside, what are some you know places within the common square that that uh, the morality of Christianity could really be seen as as you know being groundbreaking or, or actually doing uh, real good to the community at large?
0: And maybe we should define some of our terms here a little bit because okay. you use moral philosophy and then you use Christian philosophy. Okay. And um, I actually think that that Christian philosophy should draw on moral philosophy, um, but some people think Christian philosophy, you would get it from the Bible, and then we take our biblical views of morality and, and bring them to society. Yeah. And I guess I want to emphasize again, moral philosophy... Um, Ellen White actually says that moral philosophy is one of the three things that our students should especially study in school. She says they should study moral philosophy, the Bible, and physical education. Mm-hmm. And Adventists know what the Bible is, of course, and they know they think they know what physical education is. But who's had a class in moral philosophy? Not, right. not many of us. And most Adventists reading this fairly quickly say moral philosophy of the Bible. Oh, she means morality as taught in the Bible. Mm. But actually she doesn't. In 19th century, moral philosophy was a term of art that meant morality as understood and arrived at through a source, through the examination of general revelation. Mm. In other words, not Scripture. Right. And it wasn't meant to be contrary to Scripture, but it would supplement Scripture and complement Scripture. And so... It was um, a, a field of thinking about right and wrong. Yeah. And so natural law is a phrase that some of your uh, our hearers may have heard before and we usually mm. connect it with the Catholic Church for some reason mm. because it existed before the Catholic Church and there was a very strong teaching of the natural law in the Protestant world for many hundreds of years. Um, Natural law is part of what I would call moral philosophy. It's the notion that there are larger laws of right and wrong above the human laws that we write in our legislative books. And a lot of people are resistant to the notion of natural law precisely for what you earlier alluded to. They think it has to do with outlawing certain sexual practices and and it's just used as a kind of tool of modern Puritans to impose their sexual views. Um, but it really is actually a very critical idea that has played a central role in the 20th century. Just mm-hmm. to illustrate, um, you may have heard of the Nuremberg Trials, yeah. bringing Nazi leaders to account for the mass killings and genocide of the of the Jews and other peoples in World War II. Well, the problem with the Nuremberg, that the Nuremberg prosecutors were facing was that everything that Germany did, the the, the German leaders was actually legal in their country. In their country right. under and and what other laws apply to Germany than the laws that the German parliament and legislature create, right? right? And so how can you try someone for actions they've taken that were entirely lawful? They Mm. were following orders that were given by people who were carrying out the lawfully enacted laws of of the land. Mm. So it's it's kind of a conundrum. How can you prosecute them for that? And so the um, prosecutors had to rely, even though it was growing into disfavor at that point among the intelligentsia, of notions of uh, higher laws and of justice Mm. that that went against the universal understandings of humanity. And they may not have used the word natural law, but that's essentially exactly what it is, right? Right. That there's something in our human nature that says when we see uh, innocents being killed for no reason that we can say that's wrong, whether Mm. it's illegal under some statute or not. Mm. And so... Any any movement to bring reformation, so not just the Nuremberg trials, but the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., letter from the Birmingham jail, he appeals to natural law mm. as the justification for the civil disobedience that takes place, mm. right? A human law that is contrary to a higher law, to a divine law, is no law at all, mm. and therefore we are appropriate in, in resisting it. Mm. So this idea of natural law is much broader than just Particular sexual practices yeah. and in fact the whole civil rights movement, even the even the LGBT community, which makes human rights arguments, is really doing it on the basis of what of this underlying conceptions of, of natural law, which
1: of humanity and kind of the base yes. rights that are enacted for every living being.
0: Based on universal pr- principles of justice and fairness and equality. Mm. That's right.
1: That's so interesting. And I, when you're talking to this, I'm thinking of a, a slide I'd seen uh, last semester on. I think it was for the Faith and Science Council, and they were giving a talk on kind of the Christian relationship with the ecosystem and ecology, and how it. There's this graph where uh, the more you know, uh, uh, the more Bible believing you are, the less you believe in like conserving the planet or something like global stewardship, warming, stewardship,
0: environmentalism.
1: Right. But it's interesting because it should be of... The other
0: of, way around.
1: Right. And, I, you know, uh, but when you see like in the media, and especially when you see the right-wing media, that's, that's particularly more kind of Christian voice, mm-hmm. uh, or they kind of really brand themselves as the Christian voice, really downplaying things that in the moral philosophy realm should be something that a Christian would consider, um, like global warming or human rights on immigration or uh, different things that seem to fall into the moral philosophy realm. So,
0: yeah, that's that, that's a good observation, and, and it's going to force us to look a little more closely at what moral philosophy actually is and what natural law is. And... Um, when, especially when people say natural law they think you know you go out to nature and you see the way animals are acting and that's you know th- that that would be a pretty bad law because animals do lots of really bad things
1: like uh, they eat their children or <laughs>
0: cannibalism and yeah. incest and all those things can be found in nature yeah. but it's not that's not the argument the argument is is that the way nature is designed, is that it reveals certain ends and purposes, Mm. that there's a teleology to it, that um, a good example is the eye, right? The eye is created not to listen but to see and all its features are um, designed to that end and then the whole organism itself uh, exists to, well, if you look at the lower animals to... Uh, procreate and to flourish and uh, uh, they inhabit their niches and habitats and some of them keep down the pests or they keep down the weeds or, right, there's, there, there's a functioning that happens mm. and if you look at the human, you can begin to see the ends and purposes of a human, right, mm. to enjoy life um, in society, companionship is very important, Uh, the exercise of creativity, there are all these ends to being a human that people realize are important to human flourishing. And in looking at those things you can say that to arbitrarily step in and prevent certain humans from flourishing in that way, is wrong, right? It becomes a moral question that we should be guided by. Mm. And so the ultimate location, if you will, of the natural law isn't out in nature as it is in human nature. Mm. As we can look at ourselves and we see those things that make for a flourishing life and we see the intuitions we have about moral issues, about torturing babies, for instance, right? We all kind of know that that's wrong. We should care for them and, and take care of them. Um, and that that, from this study of human nature, the intuitions we have about the equality of humanity, that these things are also supported by reason and 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 other beliefs, but that um, that the study of human nature was a main place that the ancients and the reformers, all the way up to the nineteenth and twentieth century, thought was a very important thing to understand, to understand right and wrong, but in the twentieth century. We've moved away from seeing human nature as anything essential or given or static. We view it very much as malleable and changing and who's to say what it will be tomorrow versus what it was yesterday. Mm. And this is a particularly modern philosophical conceit, I would argue, that um, that, that has some real problems to it because... Well, and we talked about gender issues in human nature. The Bible talks about man and woman being in the image of God, Mm. being somehow fundamental to human nature, right? There's something important about the feminine, important about the masculine. And you don't have to believe the Bible to believe that Mm. because if you don't have a man and a woman, you don't have a continuation of the human race, right? There's something fundamental about human nature in its sexual differentiation, gender differentiation, that isn't the same as, say, something like race, mm-hmm. right? We view race as, as somehow important and it differentiates a, a us, but race is um, a historical accident, a development that, you know, the first humans were all of the same race and then they developed over time and it didn't make them more or less human, it just differentiated them externally in superficial ways that we need to learn not to treat with great difference, mm-hmm. right? right? But um, But... Gender was there at the beginning; it was fundamental, but modern philosophers and scientists seem to want to treat gender like it's race, Mm. right? And that. And if you believe in the theory of evolution, there's a certain logic to it. There was a time when whatever humanity was before it was human didn't have gender, and then it evolved into two genders, and maybe we're going to three or genders or five genders. But that's hard for a Christian to accept, and it's also hard for someone who takes biology seriously to accept.
1: And I think, and and I want you to continue with your thought and just to kind of interject on that mm-hmm. point... I think kind of the apprehension behind, okay, let's not talk about gender is because the way that sometimes um, the differentiation of gender leads to inequality. So looking for ways to say, okay, this is different. Thereby, we're going to, you know, make sure that they don't have access to certain privileges uh, rather than, you know, seeing them as as fundamentally equal. As
0: fundamentally equal. The problem with that is that if you don't differentiate gender, it can lead to even greater inequality. Mm. And so an example I would give is, you know, most men are physically stronger than most women. They're more aggressive than most women. It's not, um, you know, there's an overlap, right? Some women are more aggressive than many men. But as a general rule, that's the case. So when we say we're going to treat them just the same, which means, well, co-ed dorms in public universities, uh, co-ed units in the military, um, give them equal access to the same spaces, mix in some alcohol because they're adults, Mm. and lots of things go wrong. And they don't go wrong equally. Mm. In other words there's a higher level of assaults in the last few years in public universities and in the military, and it's not a higher level of assaults equally spread among men and women, Mm -hmm. right? It's 90 to 95% of the time it's the women being assaulted by the men. Mm -hmm. So in ignoring gender differences and pretending they don't exist, we're actually doing a disservice to those the differences that do exist in genders and we are actually hurting people and harming people through it. And so under the law we have this this very important principle that um, equal treatment doesn't mean treating everything the same, it means treating similarly situated things the same. And if things are not similarly situated, then to treat them equally may in fact involve treating them a little bit differently. Right. A a kind of funny example is um, if you go to sports stadiums and you see men's and women's restrooms and it seems like they have the same number of bathrooms in each side and so that's equal. But if you look at the lines, (laughs) the lines are out the door for the women. So if we were really going to treat them equally, we would put twice as many... Restroom stalls and the women's side, so that they had equal access to them, not just right. an equal number to them.
1: Mm, I'd be for that. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you might. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's a really great um, point. So we want equal opportunity, don't we? Right.
0: But to insist on equal outcome, um, and, and this is a the scientists have social sociologists have observed that in countries that create more and more equal opportunity there's actually a greater and greater differentiation as women are free to choose the professions they're really interested in and men are free to choose those they're interested in. So in the Scandinavian countries Mm. where there's an incredible push for gender sameness I'd even say, Mm. um, nursing, has a higher proportion of women than they do in America and and technology and computer programmers are are, are, are you know very highly filled with men mm. so we need to care about equality of opportunity and women who want to be computer programmers should be able to and and vice versa mm but we don't want to insist on equality of outcome when there may in fact be genuine gender differences in 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 interest and preference and also in terms of uh, I'm not in favor of uh, equalizing the draft, for instance, sending all our men and women or young ladies and and boys off to fight, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think you lose something important in your society when you take mothers away from children. In the, in the same way that fathers sometimes have to be removed from children when they go off to war.
1: Mm. So basically what you're saying is like when you look at a... look not looking for equality of outcome, for example, there need to be 50 male nurses and 50 female nurses when if you allowed them to choose freely, there might just be 25. 70, 30, yeah, 75,
0: exactly. 25. Right. And, and this discussion is actually... Um, I think important for our church. Mm. You and I are in favor of of women in ministry mm-hmm. and we need more women in ministry. And, and I'm not even talking about the ordination issue, I'm just talking about women in ministry, yeah. which our pioneers were in favor of. And Ellen White said there needed to be more women in ministry. And yet, I don't think that we should say that means we need to push for a day where it's 50-50, mm-hmm. right? The it, 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 ministry position is a leadership position And it seems like um, many women, in fact, like to have male leaders, ministers. But I do think that they also would want a woman to talk to who is a leader as well. But if you look at churches that have stayed biblically conservative and have ordained women ministers, uh, historically African-American churches have done it for 100 years and contrary to what many conservatives say, it doesn't automatically lead to ordaining LGBT persons, right? These are black churches that are very strong position on, on sexuality. They have ordained women leaders, have had them for 100 years. But in those churches, only about 3 or 4% of them have ordained women pastors. Mm. And I think some of it could have to do with prejudice, and it would be nicer to see a higher number. Maybe if you would get up to 10% or 10 or 15% would be great. Yeah. But I don't think you also need to say the perfect world is going to have 50-50. I think it's an unrealistic expectation given the gender preferences.
1: That if you just kind of let it, you know, let people choose their professions on their own. You'd already see kind of this differentiation happening amongst themselves. We don't necessarily have to regulate it.
0: So that you can see there could be a left-wing tyranny, right? Sometimes on the right wing, we're not allowing equality of opportunity, and that's tyrannical. But on the left wing, if we insist on equality of outcome, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to impose Mm -hmm. quotas and force people to accept And take jobs they don't want, and right. So there's, we're interested in freedom, so that true underlying traits can be expressed.
1: I hope that I mean I feel like what you're saying is coming across very clearly to me. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that our listeners are also uh, understanding the nuances of of what's being said, as far as you know that 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 true equal opportunity doesn't always necessarily mean there's going to be an equal outcome. That's right. And then that that actually is a kind of an exhibition of true freedom we allowed true true
0: freedom freedom and of the genuine importance of of the duality of human nature right Mm. women are important men are important and both need to be they need to have their various traits and characteristics expressed Mm. and if they were all expressed in the same way then they would be uh duplicates of each other and that's not what god made
1: right i guess my next question would be and and i i And one of my questions was going to be, you know, do you think moral philosophy in our lack of participation in that really is affecting our ability to outreach? But you pretty much mentioned that. But I guess the question would be, how picayune should we be in our kind of, because it's hard for a Christian to bring, you know, to say, I'm going to look at this as totally moral philosophy, but they're coming from a Christian biblical framework. Things like that might be human rights issues are things that I think people can say, no, we can, we're we're against, you know, sex trafficking. We're against, um, you know, people uh, doing violence unto others. But things that become smaller, uh, in my opinion, like the use of marijuana or uh, other types of things that we're legislating in the public square, um, or maybe sometimes we just shift our focus. Maybe like, you know, maybe we should be more concerned with, you know, uh, you know regulation on big corporations and what they 're doing to the environment rather than maybe some smaller i want to say less consequential issues um, like how does somebody know what are the battles to to get into and 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 <laughs> which ones are ones that they should probably well do for another day you know that's a good
0: question <laughs> isn 't it it 's hard to answer that in the abstract, but those two issues that you talked about could actually be put together right mm-hmm. marijuana and big corporations seeking to make money. Mm. Well, there's not a lot of big corporations involved in marijuana right now and that's because it's actually still illegal at the federal level. And so big corporations that are operating multi-state and it's hard to do banking actually um, in the marijuana industry because Mm -hmm. banks are regulated federally and so there's a lot of cash transactions even for legal marijuana which becomes cumbersome and and hard to handle in large quantities. But, you know, we're talking about natural law being based on human nature Mm. and injuries to human nature are significant under the natural law, right? Um, And this was the justification on alcohol issues, right? We're looking at the ends of humanity. Are people flourishing or not flourishing? And you could say you can point to a concert pianist paying a beautiful Mozart piece on the piano, and you can point to a drunk in a gutter covered with his own vomit, and if you have a purely subjective sense of what ends are, you can say, well, both of them are following their bliss, and they are both flourishing as humans. But is that really true? Right? Right? And and I, I think that going back to aristotle you know not just the bible but the notion of happiness isn't as the as our you know the declaration of independence the pursuit of happiness under the modern conception of it mm. the drunk in the gutter covered with his vomit and the concert pianist playing the beautiful music well as long as they're both equally happy they're both equally successful human beings mm. and this is a suggestion that actually moral philosophy tells you to say no look more closely at human nature look at what flourishing is and and we do have to be careful here in terms of paternalism the government saying what's good for us right um and yet and yet we the government runs schools it instructs young people and i would believe that the school should be able to say this is more about human flourishing—the pianist with the wonderful classical music—than the drunk in the gutter. Mm. And I would want the school to be able to say, "This is not a morally positive approach to your life," and this, or some variation. We don't care if you play the piano or paint pictures, or you know, but but something that has to do with human nature flourishing. And I think that that isn't uh, inherently religious standard, right? I think right. those are standards that human beings of of all religious persuasions can come to some agreement on.
1: Right. And uh, I, I wonder how much, you know, should we just be using persuasion on certain issues rather than legislation? Because, you know, when, when it comes to something like going back to the marijuana law, <laughs> uh-huh. I think there's a lot larger underlying factors that are affecting human flourishing. Poverty, overwork, economic situations where you have something like you know, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or cigarettes or caffeine or things that people are using to kind of self-medicate their own situation when maybe the underlying problem is just just poverty or um, just not, you know, being overworked, being stressed, not having access to some resources.
0: Or maybe it's both, right? I mean, right. The, the, and, and this is the catch-22. I, I talked about the corporations and marijuana. I didn't kind of finish the thought, okay. and that was... What about the tobacco companies? Right. And you could say, well, people need to have freedom to choose, but the reality was kids were getting hooked on smoking at 12, 13, 14, developing a habit which was very difficult to break and control, and the big corporations were milking people for millions and billions of dollars and shortening their lives by tens of years and bringing them all sorts of diseases.
1: Right.
0: Is that really freedom
1: Mm.
0: right on on either side of that equation and that the the freedom that you're talking about is actually often freedom for very wealthy and powerful institutions to use their power and resources to trap poor people Mm. in cycles of addiction and abuse that contribute to their poverty that's right. True, yeah. I mean there's there's and marijuana, yeah. look, I'm not an expert on marijuana, but I've read enough about it to know that it certainly doesn't have a positive effect on people's ambitions, right? right? And getting out and doing things. And yeah. um I think that at least when we're talking about young people, those under eighteen. I think we can all agree that coercion needs to happen in those instances. We have laws against alcohol use in those instances. Um, And if alcohol wasn't legal today and it was being brought on the market, the FDA would never allow it to be approved. It's far too destructive. Mm. It's merely convention and tradition that allows us to put up with the deaths of many times more people per year... From alcohol use, then died in the Twin Trade, you know, Twin Trade Towers in in uh, 2001. Right. That allows us just to accept it. You know, moral philosophy requires a lot of education, and there's often the questions of pragmatism: how far can you push things, and how far can you help people without them feeling that they're losing their freedoms or being infringed? But I think that 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 the far greater risk is allowing corporations to use their muscle and economic might right. to persuade, to influence, to hook young kids, whether it be on vaping or marijuana or cigarettes, yeah. and then lead them into a life where there's been an addiction put into place and a dependence that leads the spiral of uh, of poverty, or at least prevents them in part from getting out of it.
1: Yeah. No, I I really like that that perspective, and I think you know, there's a, there's a beautiful place for like idealism and like what things should ideally be. And and unfortunately, I feel like in the, in the pragmatism of it, I feel like in the end, you know, poor people still pay the price because they they're the ones who are criminalized and put into prison. And, but the big corporations don't necessarily see those same things. So, uh, but, and so I guess, you know, one word, juggling the moral philosophy? How much do we have to consider pragmatism versus kind of the ideal version of what we think it should be?
0: So there's a very important part of the natural law tradition that talks about prudential considerations. Mm. And this is in Thomas Aquinas, and I'm sure earlier than that, that you have an ideal set of laws uh, that you'd like to reach, but an ideal set of behaviors but you might actually cause more harm than good by trying to enforce them mm. because the law is a very blunt mechanism. You can't be in everyone's rooms and houses all the time and you would lose far more freedoms uh, by doing that. And so, you know, you ha- there's a calculus in terms of uh, what laws can practically be enforced. I'm not leading a an expedition to try to even though I think our pioneers were right about temperance reform and alcohol, we're just not at a place in our country where putting a lot of effort into that would probably move the dial or the needle as much as you would need to have any impact. Mm. Now, actually, sometimes I've wondered, I mean, there are places like counties and villages that have gone dry or cities, um, and there was an article in Liberty Magazine a few years ago by Jennifer Jill Swerzer, shout out to her, Adventist artist and counselor, and uh it was in Alaska, and they had all sorts of social problems and uh, beatings and criminal records and drug addiction and They decided to go dry, mm-hmm. not sell any alcohol in town limits and It was sort of an isolated place, so it was hard to kind of you know go to the next town to the next county and bring it in. And there was quite a dramatic turnaround in the town in mm. terms of social issues and people going to school and people taking care of kids and, and the criminal uh, um, activity dropping. Mm. So, you know, I thought, well, here we are in Berrien Springs. Maybe I should get some Andrews kids and we could make it a dry town. Uh, village. Dry <laughs> village, that's right. Yeah. But but I think you focus on those things where there seems to be an opportunity to to change. Mm.
1: That's good. Things for the better. What would you like to, to leave our audience here today? Um, anything that, that comes to mind that's really kind of pressing on your heart as of late?
0: Well, I, maybe I'll reflect back to the book that uh, I was reading um, in, in the opening, N.T. Wright's book about Paul and about Paul the Jew who believed that being saved wasn't just about being saved for heaven but it was also very much about being saved for this world, and that the Kingdom of God wasn't simply in the future, but it had begun here amongst those who believed in Christ. And uh, as I look at the trajectory of my life, it's taken me years, maybe decades, to see the importance of my role as a Christian in, in the public square and in public issues, not imposing the special revelation truths of, you know, the Sabbath and prayer and faith, but in but in speaking out and standing for principles of justice and fairness and right, whether that be, and, and it's not a left or a right issue, it's both. Mm. you know. And maybe I, I can end by summarizing, you know, the left wing often gets wrong basic human nature issues, gender and sexuality issues. I think they're very confused on it. I think it's leading to terrible public policy in public schools and the military and we're going to be paying the price for it for a long time. But I also see the problem on the right wing, which claims to be Christian, and they should have an understanding of both the fallenness of human nature but the equality of human nature. And there what I see is a division of people into an inside trusted group and then the other, the outside group. Mm-hmm. And the inside trusted group, which is like us white Americans, especially that are rich and own businesses, mm-hmm. well, we should be free and deregulated and, and any constraints on us removed because if we're good people, we're Americans, we would never do wrong, right? Mm-hmm. You can trust our military and our corporations and we overlook the fact that we all have fallen human natures and we're going to misuse that power in corporations. The collapse of 2008 is in good part because of that. So there's this inside trusted group that's too trusted, mm. but then the others, the outsiders, whether it be the immigrants or the Mexicans or the Muslims or the, no, they're bad and dangerous and Mexican immigrants are, you know, criminals and rapists or the Muslims should be excluded from the country, militant mm. Muslims and And we can't trust them and we won't even extend them fundamental human rights Mm -hmm. of due process. We still have people in Guantanamo jail. Here we are, you know, 19 years after 2001 and we we still hold them without hearing or trial. Mm -hmm. And why do we do it? We would never hold white Westerners in a jail like that Mm -hmm. because we view them as fundamentally different, lesser, not fully made in the image of God. Mm. So both groups, both the left and the right, suffer from this um, malaise, from this blindness about the teachings of human nature that are given to us both in God's written word, but I think also in his book of nature Mm. and that we need to take more seriously and that we have to grapple with philosophy and put a proper understanding of human nature back into the center of it.
1: Mm. So... For those who are wanting to learn more about this topic, what are some books that you can direct them to read? <laughs> well, you could get
0: my book, The Reformation and the Remnant, which Pacific Press sells, and it sort of puts some of these ideas into the theological history and context of the Adventist Church. Um, there's another very uh, a brilliant author on all of this, of course, is C.S. Lewis, who's the Christian thinker um, who wrote Mere Christianity which is a good place to start for his thoughts about Christianity and the moral philosophical foundations of of a belief in a God and a belief in Christ and and the Bible. Um, And then also his his book, which is a little more philosophical, The Abolition of Man, Mm. which talks specifically about these concepts of human nature that I've been referring to. And he really diagnoses, I mean, it's written 75 years ago at this point, but Mm. Europe was a bit ahead of the curve from where America was in the rise of postmodernism, and really what he's writing just resonates so strongly today with both the problems on the right and the left. He saw it in the communists and the socialists, which he might say are the democratic left-wing side, and the fascists of his day. Mm. And we are developing those two extremes, and his diagnosis is, is very important. If I was to speak of a more modern author, Jordan Peterson is not a Christian per se, but he um, reads the Bible very seriously. And he's a very brilliant psychologist, sociologist from Canada, has a book called 12 Rules, 12 Rules for Living, I think. Um, And I think he gets at some of the problems and the malaise that we face. So he's kind of a voice supporting my point that this is about moral philosophy, not just about scriptural insight. Like my book is about Christian theology and C.S. Lewis writes as the Christian theologian, but Jordan Peterson writes as kind of a secular philosopher who's now grown very sympathetic to Christianity and even the Bible and the teachings of Christ, but he's seeing these things Um, And it supports my point that it's about moral philosophy, that that Mm. smart people who look at nature and use reason should be able to see these same truths. Mm.
1: What about, uh, and I haven't read this, one of the speakers who were here, Just Politics? Yeah, so
0: if you're looking for another Christian book, uh, Ron Sider uh, does a great uh, book about the politics of the Bible and Jesus called Just Politics. Sider is a Mennonite. Uh, I use his book in my class, I think he is the closest to a biblical perspective of what the Bible says about the way we should approach economics and social issues. I find a lot of resonance between what he writes and what uh, Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets. She has a whole couple of chapters on treating the poor and the economy of ancient Israel, the jubilees and the gleanings and the offerings for the poor and the, the fair treatment of immigrants, all things which are very relevant today, at least the principles of them. Mm. And a lot of people want to discount that that was under a theocracy. and But Ellen White says if these principles were in place today, mm. it would make governments much fairer and uh, the gap between rich and poor would decline.
1: Mm. We're so glad you joined us this week as we continue our discussion with Dr. Nicholas Miller on the intersectionality of faith and politics. We hope this program was informative, but more importantly, that it gave you tools to begin to critically think about your relationship with politics as a Christian. Our recommended reading for last week was Dr. Miller's book, The Reformation and the Remnant. Another recommendation for this week is Ron Sider's book, Just Politics. We want to thank the Advent Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Nicholas Miller. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. Thanks so much for listening in and see you next week.